You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to begin our message this morning by reading our text, which comes from Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore now we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation." This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And this morning as we study it, Lord, would you make it alive in our hearts? Would you apply it to our lives? And Lord, may we not only be hearers of your word, may we be doers of it also. Lord, we pray that this morning you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see glorious things in your word. And we pray that, Lord, as a result of what we hear and what we read today, we would praise you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So have you ever been really anxious about something? Or, or like really worried or really stressed out. And then you talk to somebody and they gave you a piece of sage wisdom and advice, just a stroke of genius. Here's what they told you. Don't worry. Like, don't be stressed out. I know you're anxious, but don't be anxious. And problem solved, right? Because that's all you needed to know was just, oh, okay, so I should just not be worried and then I won't be worried anymore. Of course that doesn't work. That's like the worst advice you can give a person who's stressed out is, hey, don't stress out. Because you're not giving them any tools to help them not be stressed out. You're not giving them anything to help them feel differently. And that's the thing about our feelings, right? A lot of times we can't choose our feelings. We can't turn them on and off like a switch. And I saw something the other day that said that if you stress out a lot, the reason you shouldn't stress out is because if you stress out, it'll kill you. And I read that and I thought, well, that really stresses me out because before I was only worried about my problems and now I'm worried about being stressed out because that's going to kill me. So that just gave me one more thing to be stressed out about. And you know what's interesting is that the Bible actually tells us something that at first glance kind of feels like that. Like it tells us to love others. It tells us that we're commanded to love God, that we're commanded to love our neighbors, our our fellow human beings. We're commanded to love our spouses. We're even commanded to love our enemies. But how do you do that? Because if you loved your enemies, they probably wouldn't be your enemies, would they? Right? Like traditional wedding vows, for example, include this, this statement that you promise to love this person for the rest of your life until death do you part. But how often do we hear stories of people who are like, I used to love this person and now I don't. Like I fell out of love with this person. Or I just, when I think about this person, I don't feel any, any warm, fuzzy feelings of love towards them at all. Or maybe I used to love this person, but now I love this person instead. How can anyone promise then that they're going to love the same person for the rest of their life? Because if you wait 10 years from now, what if your feelings change? Here's the crazy thing about marriage. Any of you who have been married for any amount of time know this is true. You're no longer married to the person that you married originally. 
because people change. And some of us, some of you know exactly what that, that's like, right? The person you married was young and attractive and fit, and they had dreams and aspirations, and that simply just doesn't describe the person that you're married to now, right? They might have the same name, they might have the same social security number, but they're a completely different person now than the person that you married years ago. And maybe you loved that person that you married, but the person you're married to now, not as much, right? And, and so this idea of love at first sight that's so popular in our culture, it, it insinuates that love is just this, this kind of fleeting thing that comes or goes and we have absolutely no control over it. Or how about this? What if, what if there's somebody in your life who you can't stand, but then you read the Bible and the Bible tells you that you have to love them? The problem is you don't love them. And, and so what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to just pretend that you like them, pretend that you love them, or just fake it till you make it? Or, or when the Bible tells you to love God, but when you think about God, you don't exactly feel love, right? Maybe you feel indifference, or maybe you feel something else, like frustration or resentment. Maybe things have happened in your life, and you wonder why. If there is a God, then, then why did this happen? Why didn't he make things happen differently? And it brings up another question. How do I know that God loves me? And, and even if he does love me today, how do I know that he's not going to just stop loving me at some point in the future if I mess up? And of course, the answer to all of these questions is what the Bible teaches us, and that is that love is not just a fleeting feeling. Love is an action. Love is an action. That's why God can instruct us and command us to love our neighbors, love our spouses, love our enemies even, because love isn't just a feeling that comes and goes and we have no control over it. It's a posture that we take towards other people or towards a thing or towards a person. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but let us love in deed and in truth. And here's what inevitably happens, invariably happens. As you start doing that, as you start walking in these outward actions of love toward another person, what happens is that you find that your inward feelings towards that person begin to change as well. See, as a result of acting in a way that you didn't act before, you begin to feel in a way that you didn't feel before. And as a result of loving that person with your actions, you begin to feel feelings of affection for them as well. So you see, here's the thing about feelings, right? We can't just change the way we feel by flipping a switch or telling ourselves to just knock it off. But there are things that we can do which can affect how we feel about things and how we think about them. For example, if you introduce new information to a person, it can often change how they think or feel. For example, if you're scared about something, but then I introduce some new information, that might change your feeling about that thing. And what we have in the gospel, in, in the good news of Jesus Christ, is both of these things. It's both of these things. And so the title of today's message is, Love is an Action. And in our text today, what we're going to see is three things that prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that God loves you. But as we look at these things, we're also going to see the implications of them. And what we're going to see is how these actions provide us with new information that changes how we think and how we feel about many different areas of our lives. So Let's begin by looking at these things. God's actions of love that change everything. Number one, we see in our text that he justifies. This is his first action of love that he shows us. He justifies us. We see this in, in the first verse of the, of the text. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified. Now this is what we've been talking about for the past several Sundays as we've been studying through the book of Romans. We've been going through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And this is what it's been all about so far is this 
word justification. Justification is a legal term. It's a legal status that is bestowed upon you by decree. We have a saying in our culture, don't we? We have a saying that nobody's perfect. We all kind of accept that. We just nod our heads. Yeah, nobody's perfect. That's true. But you know, there's also a story behind that, right? There's a story behind my imperfection. There's a story behind your imperfection. See, it's not just that we mess up sometimes and and we fail. That's part of it. But beyond that, we also do things that hurt other people. We do things where we've sinned against other people and against God. And in chapters one through three of Romans, what we saw is that, that Paul took us into God's courtroom, so to say, and he showed us the evidence that proves that we're guilty, that we have a debt before God that we cannot pay. And we talked about that come judgment day, it's not going to be good for us. It's dead man walking. We stand condemned. There's nothing that we can do about it. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can't be good enough to save ourselves. We can't save ourselves by being more religious and more adherent to to religious ceremonies and practices. What's done is done, and the righteous judge of all the earth has handed down our sentence. But... The good news, the great news, the outstanding news, the unbelievable news is that that very same judge has stepped down from his judge's platform and he has come and he stood beside us and he put his arm around us and he took the judgment that we deserve. That same judgment that he himself pronounced upon us, he came and took it upon himself in order that we might be justified. See, Jesus Christ, he came to this earth. He lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death then that you should have died on the cross in your place. And as a result, your conviction order, your execution order, it's like someone took it and they took one of those big rubber stamps and they pounded it down and it says paid in full. And then they they went over to your record, the record of your, your good deeds and your bad deeds. And they took another big rubber stamp and they stamped that one and it says justified. See, justified is a legal status. We tend to think only in two categories, right? We tend to think that people are either guilty or they're innocent. But here he introduced us to a third category, justified. In other words, you were guilty, but someone else stepped in and paid the price for you, and your record has been cleared. In fact, not only do you have a clean record, but he's also given you a positive record. Imagine if you were on death row, and one day they come to your cell, and they say, it's time to go, and so you're like, I guess this is it. But instead of walking you to your death, they actually walk you outside. They take off the handcuffs, and they say, here you go. You're free. Go on. Because, see, someone else showed up, and they took your death penalty for you. They paid the price for you, and now you're free. And now the question is, what are you going to do now? How do you live now on the outside, right? How do you live now as a free person, given a second chance? That's what the rest of the book of Romans is going to be about from this point on. How to live on the outside. How to live as a free person with this new life that you've been given in Jesus. And that's why he starts verse 1 with the words, therefore and since. Those are transitionary words. Whenever you see that word, therefore, what it means that he's taking everything that he set up until this point and he says okay you got that right now we're going to step up from that and we're going to say because that's true now here's the implications of that here's what happens next so he says therefore since you have been justified now if you're a grammar nerd or a grammar nazi you'll notice something in that phrase it's written in what we call the passive voice i'll just tell you a quick story i'm a bit of a grammar nerd and uh and a grammar nazi myself i get really upset when people use contractions the wrong way. So my wife, Rosemary, you know, I never thought that that would benefit me, but my wife, Rosemary, when I first met her, she actually had a crush on this other guy 
who was a friend of mine, but he had one fatal flaw. He was a terrible speller, and he had terrible grammar and punctuation. So they started writing letters back and forth, and she said, you know what? I can't do this. This guy, he can't write, he can't spell, his grammar's terrible. Now, I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of strengths, but I do have one, and that is that I'm super good at spelling and grammar. And so all you grammar Nazis out there, take this to heart, never forget this. Someday God could use that for good in your life. Like when you're reading the Bible, for example, and you read this phrase, and it says you have been justified, and you say, you know what? I think that's a passive voice. You're absolutely right. It's a passive voice. A passive voice speaks not of what you do, as the active voice does, right? You do something. No, the passive voice speaks of something that's been done to you. You didn't do it yourself, but it was done for you. It was done unto you, and that's what we have here with the gospel. He says, this is what Jesus did for you. You didn't justify yourself. You didn't make yourself right with God. It was done for you by Jesus, not by believing and trusting in yourself, but you receive it, how? By faith. That's what we talked about last week. You receive it by faith, not by trusting in yourself, not by believing in yourself, but by trusting in and believing in Jesus, by relying on and clinging to him and what he did for you on the cross. Then verse 6, it tells us this. We're going to skip down to verse 6. Here's what it tells us about his justification we've received. He goes on and he says, for while we were still weak, unable to help ourselves at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? Well, look, I don't want to scare you, but they're surrounding you. They're sitting all around you right now. In fact, you yourself are one of them. He died for you. Now, you might ask the question, have you ever thought about this? Is there anything or anyone for whom I would be willing to give my life, for whom I would be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice? Check out what it says then in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a person might die for a good person. In other words, there aren't probably a lot of people out there, there probably aren't a lot of people out there who you'd be willing to give your life for, who you'd be willing to die for, who you'd be willing to lay it all down for. But if there were, those would probably be people that you care deeply about. So check out what it says next, the most incredible verse in this whole section, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says in verse 8, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love, he proves his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever doubt that God really loves you, that God really cares about you, then you need to pay attention here. All you have to do is look to the cross and all your questions will be answered because on the cross, Jesus gave his life for you, the ultimate sacrifice. He doesn't just say that he loves you. He proved it in the most ultimate way by giving his life for you. One of my other favorite verses in the Bible is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night before he's going to the cross. And in his last kind of long talk that he has with them, it's written down there for us over the course of four chapters. And there in chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would give his life for his friends. And then the very next day, what did he do? Did exactly that. He gave his life for who? For his friends. Do you realize that that includes you? That's the category that he puts you in. He calls you his friend. See, we who were once rebels and enemies of God, he has reached out across the chasm. He has performed the greatest act of love so that we could become friends. And so that's the action of love that we see in this text. He justifies us. And, and, but 
now let's talk about the implications. So the action is he justifies us. And we see in this text three implications of the fact that we've been justified. Number one is that we have peace with God. We see that in verse one. Having, now we have peace with God because we've been justified. See, having peace with God is not the same thing as having the peace of God. In another part of the Bible, in Philippians chapter four, Paul talks about something called the peace of God. He says that may the peace of God rule in your hearts and minds. May it guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That peace of God that surpasses all understanding. But see, the peace of God is kind of a sense of calm, is a sense of confidence that you can have even in the midst of turbulent times because you're confident in God and his sovereignty and his love for you. But the peace with God is something different. See, peace with God insinuates that at one time we were not at peace with God. In fact, the Bible talks about this elsewhere. It says that apart from Christ, we were at enmity with God. In other words, we were at war with God. And what he's saying is that now, because of what Jesus did, the war is over. See, until you surrender your life to God, here's what happens. As as you're living your life apart from Christ, here's what you're doing. You are living at enmity with God. In other words, there's this war, there's this struggle going on. Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be the king? Who's going to be sovereign over over this life, right? It's kind of like two countries arguing over a disputed territory, both of them laying claim to it and saying, this is mine. We rule in this place. And, and we do that with our own lives. We say, this is my life. I'm going to do what I want to do with it, right? You can't tell me what to do with my life. You can't tell me what to do with my body. This is me, and I have sovereignty over my life and my body. I do with it what I will. And yet there's God on the other side saying, no, I created you, and you belong to me. And so there's this battle going on. Who's going to be in charge? Like two countries fighting over a disputed territory. I read a story really uh, last night, really interesting story that I thought I got to include this. See, there's an island in the Pacific and during World War II, Japan occupied this island. In 1945, the Japanese military sent a small group of soldiers to defend this island in the Pacific and the war ended a few months later. But see, when Japan surrendered but these soldiers stayed on this island and they refused to give up. And years went by, years and years, decades even. And these soldiers eventually died. They died of sicknesses and illnesses, except for one. One guy finally surrendered, and he surrendered, you know when? 1974. This guy surrendered 29 years after the war had already ended. While the rest of Japan was enjoying peace and economic prosperity, Prosperity. This group of soldiers held out for almost 30 years, suffering, fighting malaria, right? Having sicknesses and diseases. Why? Totally unnecessary. They refused to surrender, even though the war was already over. See, it was completely unnecessary. The Japanese military would even send people out to them, messengers and other soldiers, to tell them, hey, the war's over. You need to give up. But every time anybody got close, they would attack them. They would shoot at them. They refused to accept this. They refused to surrender, and and they would attack the messengers until finally this last guy, he got just so tired of fighting this unnecessary war that was already over. He got so tired of resisting all these messengers that he said, fine, and he laid down his weapon, and he came home. 
And isn't that just a picture of so many of us and this way that so many of us are? We've refused to surrender our lives to God, even though because of Jesus, the war is over. It's totally unnecessary. Jesus declared, it is finished. But instead of enjoying peace and life in him, you're still holding out, right? You're still digging in your heels, refusing to give up control of your life because you're afraid of what you might lose or what you might give up. And it's not like you're happy. You're miserable the whole time, like those soldiers on that island, but you're still not willing to give up. And maybe some of you, even today, listening to this, that's exactly where you're at today. You're like that Japanese soldier. You know that God's calling you. You know that he's declared the war is over. It's finished, but you're still holding out. You're still refusing to surrender your life to him. You're holding out. You're, you're hostile towards the messengers he sends you. I want to tell you today, you can stop fighting this pointless battle. The moment you do that, the moment you surrender to him, you know what he'll do? He'll embrace you. He'll forgive your sins. He'll crown you with righteousness. He'll treat you as a son and as a daughter. And I pray that all of us would come to that point of full surrender and enjoying the fact that we have peace with God because of what Jesus did for us. The next thing we see, the next implication of the fact that we've been justified is this. Now we have access to his grace. I read another story uh, recently about a young boy who had gone to Buckingham Palace. This was several years ago, but he had gone to Buckingham Palace, a British kid, and, and somehow he had gotten this idea in his mind. And, and you know how kids are. If they get an idea in their mind, it's hard to get it out. So he got this idea in his mind that if he went to Buckingham Palace, that he was going to see the queen. So they went on the whole tour. They did the whole thing. And when the boy found out that he wasn't going to be able to meet the queen, he got upset and he started to cry and, and get, you know, you know, visibly upset. Well, Prince Charles happened to find out about this. And so Prince Charles said, well, I'm going to go talk to this boy. And he went to this boy and he told him, you come with me. And he led that boy back behind all the ropes and behind all the doors. And he led him right into the presence of Queen Elizabeth and introduced him and said, there you go. Here's the queen. See, that's what we have with Jesus. We have Jesus is that one who gives us access to the Father. It's that backstage pass that gives us access to God where we stand in his grace. And notice that it says that we stand in his grace. That's a position. It's a new standing that we have before God in Christ because of what he's done for us. We stand in his grace. You know what it means to stand in his grace, what that standing means for us? First of all, it means you don't have to prove anymore that you're worthy of God's love. You don't have to prove that you're worthy of God's love. It means that you can stop trying to keep a scorecard to prove the fact that you've done enough for him to love you and accept you and bless you, that you've done enough or maybe when you haven't done enough, you say, well, I'm not, I'm not adequate. No, the account has been settled by Jesus once and for all. Secondly, you know what it means? It means that God calls you his friend. That's what it means to stand in grace. And thirdly, it means that the door of access to God and to his grace is permanently open to you. See, sometimes like when I'm working, I have an office at home and I'll shut my door when I need to focus and get some work done. But I've told my kids, hey, you know what? Even if that door's shut, it's always open to you. You can always come in no matter what I'm doing. I'm, you're not distracting me. I'd love to see you. And so my kids know open door policy. If they want to come talk to dad, anytime they're welcome to come and talk to dad. And that's the way it is with us as children of God. We have this open door policy where God says, anytime you're welcome to come in and, and receive freely from my grace and be in my presence. Next, we, we, the final implication that we see in this text, verse 2, we have the hope 
of the glory of God. Verse 9 tells us that we have been justified by Jesus' blood. And as a result of that, we are saved from the wrath of God. We've been talking about this the last couple weeks, that God isn't emotionally detached when it comes to sin, but he's emotionally engaged. And because of that, he doesn't just feel bummed out when we sin, but he actually feels upset. He feels wrath. And so in Jesus, he took the wrath of God on our behalf. So we no longer have to fear the wrath of God, but instead it says, verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, the hope of heaven. You know, hope is defined as a happy certainty. It's not a pie in the sky like maybe I hope that works out, like I hope I win the lottery. No, it's a happy certainty. And we can live our lives knowing that we don't have to fear death because for us in Christ, death is to go to a friend. Now check this out. The three benefits of justification, peace, access, and hope. Three benefits of justification, peace, access, and hope. These three benefits speak to the three tenses of salvation. See, that gospel is holistic. There's a sense in which you have been saved in the past. It's been declared. It's done. There's another sense in which you are being saved. God is working in your life and setting you free. And there's a sense in the future in which you will be saved. So we see that here. The gospel speaks to our past. Our past is taken care of and forgiven and set free. In the present, we enjoy a relationship with God through Jesus. And in the future, we look forward to the hope of heaven and the glory of God. And that brings us to the second act of love that we see here in our text. Verses 3 through 5, we see this act of love. God's act of love is that he redeems our pain. I mean, sure, it's great that God saves our souls, but what about those of us who are going through really difficult things right now? What does the gospel make a difference in that? It makes every difference in the world. The gospel does. Look at what it says in verse 3. He says, we rejoice not only in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, we don't only rejoice in the fact that we're going to heaven one day. We also rejoice even in the midst of our sufferings here and now. Notice he doesn't say that we rejoice for our sufferings. That might be morbid and masochistic. No, we don't necessarily always rejoice for our sufferings, but we always rejoice in our sufferings. And he tells us why we can rejoice in our sufferings. He says this, because we know that suffering produces all these things in our lives. God uses it in all these great ways. It produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us or put us to shame. We can rejoice in our suffering because we have the promise that God will actually redeem our suffering. And in the end, he will actually use it for our benefit and for his glory in order to make us into the people that he desires us to become. You know, we see this principle at work throughout the Bible and so many stories in the Bible. If we have it declared for us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says this. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. The Bible tells us this, that God is not the author of evil. In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't author bad things and evil. We do have an enemy, Satan, the evil one whose desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. But you know, one of the things that I always notice is that sometimes when people talk about Satan or, or evil powers or things like that, sometimes they talk about it as if, as if there's this kind of tug of war going on between evil and good, like Satan and God. And it's kind of 50-50, like we don't really know who's going to win. And sometimes it seems like, you know, Satan's kind of got the advantage and God's kind of on his heels and we got to get on God's side and kind of help 
help him out and tug that rope or else God's going to lose. That's kind of how it's portrayed sometimes. I think that's, that's totally silly and it's not biblical at all. See, you want to know what the Bible says about it? Check this out. One of my favorite things the Bible says on this topic, Colossians 3 verse 15. It says this, that speaking of Jesus, having disarmed the power and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public display, a public spectacle of them triumphing over them on the cross. What it's saying is this, that Jesus, by his death on the cross, he triumphed over Satan. He triumphed over all evil forces. So it's not a tug of war, right? It's already done. Like Jesus already defeated, already overcome, already triumphed over them. But check this out. See, this is the part that, that a lot of people miss in that sentence. Jesus did more than just defeat them. He actually put them to open shame is how one translation puts it. Or in this one, it says that he made a public spectacle of them. What does that mean? A public spectacle, open shame. See, this public spectacle actually speaks of a practice that was common in the ancient world. And when there was a war between two armies, when that one army defeated the other army, they would capture the, the prisoners of war, so to say, right? The enemy soldiers who they had been fighting against. But instead of killing them, they would give them what was considered a fate worse than death. Instead of killing them, they would chain them up and they would march them back to the, the victorious army's uh, hometown, their, their main city, and they would take them and they'd march them through the streets naked and in chains, and they would just put them to public humiliation. And, and then they would go a step even beyond that. They would make those losing enemy soldiers, they would actually make them their slaves. Right? It's the ultimate humiliation that for the rest of your life, Life, you're going to have to serve as a slave of the people who defeated you. Now think about what that means and what that's saying when we talk about Jesus and how he has triumphed over and defeated and put to public shame the evil forces. It means this, that Jesus not only defeated evil, defeated Satan, but he disarmed them, it says. But the ultimate form of humiliation, now everything they do, he uses to accomplish his purposes. Think about how frustrating that would be. Like you're an evil spirit or you're Satan and you think, okay, I'm really going to do something now. I'm really going to wreak some havoc. And then you do it and then guess what? That also was used to accomplish God's purposes. That's why the Bible says things like this. It says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and for the salvation of many. In other words, the ultimate humiliation of Satan and evil forces is that God takes what they do and uses it for his purposes so that ultimately it accomplishes what he intends for it to accomplish. Just imagine how frustrating that must be. Everything they do accomplishes God's purposes instead. Now, this is one of God's actions of love for you. That were, that's listed here, that if you are his, then he, he redeems your suffering. In other words, your suffering, your pain is not wasted. The bad things that you go through, he will use those and redeem those for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. And the fact is that if you want to, for example, if you want to run a marathon, you're never going to get stronger. You're never going to improve unless you are put to the test. And that's true in life. It's true in sport, but it's also true in faith. If you never push yourself beyond what you're comfortable with. If you're never pushed, if you won't do it, then somebody else needs to do it. Then you'll never make progress. And as a person who's been justified by Christ, here's what you can be sure of, that your suffering, your hardships, your difficulties will never be wasted. God will use them to shape you and make you into the person that he wants you to become so you can fulfill the callings that he's put on your life. See, here's the thing. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you surrender your life to God, 
then you're still gonna have problems and you're still gonna have hardships and you're still gonna have difficulties in this life. We live in a broken world with broken people. We're not who we used to be, but we're not yet who we will be. And so we're still going to have difficulties and hardships and pain in this life. But you have this promise that God will redeem those things. He will redeem your pain and use them for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. And so the action and the implication, the action is that he redeems our pain, but the implication is we can run towards the roar. You can run towards the roar. What does that mean? So I read this thing recently about lions. Have you ever looked at how lions hunt. It's fascinating, actually. You may already know this part, that it's really the lionesses who do the lion's share of the hunting when it comes to lions. The males don't do much, right? The females do most of the hunting. Now, the males, they're the ones with the ferocious roar that's frightening, right, and scary, and they have that awesome mane that looks so cool. But the, the fact is that the females do most of the hunting. But here's the thing. The, the females don't have a big mane, and, and they don't have the big roar, but that's actually to their benefit. It actually helps them because what they'll do is the females, when they're hunting, they'll sneak up behind their prey and they'll be able to be in the grass and remain perfectly still like a statue for long periods of time, completely motionless so that the prey doesn't even know they're there. And here's what you may not know. This was new information for me, is that the male lions actually do play a part in the hunting process. They play a small part, but a very important part in the hunting process. Here's what they do. See, the female lion will go and they'll sneak up behind the prey and they'll wait for really long periods of time, just totally motionless, and they're waiting there, stalking the prey from behind. But at the same time, the male lion will come in front of the prey, and, and when he gets close, he'll let out this ferocious roar, this roar that's so powerful that it can be heard for up to five miles away. So they'll let out this ferocious, you know, earth-shaking roar, and they'll be there with their big mane. The, the sound is so powerful, and hearing that terrifying noise, it causes the antelope or the gazelle or whatever other animal they're hunting, it causes them instinctually to run in the opposite direction. You and I would probably do the same thing, but guess what? Where do they run? Right into the path of the lioness who's been waiting there to catch them and trap them and kill them. See, here's the irony. The male lion may look scary, he may sound scary, but he's more bark than he is bite. And in reality, the safest thing to do, if you were a gazelle, if you were an antelope, the safest thing for you to do would actually be to run towards the roar, not away from it. In other words, the animal's instinct is wrong. Following their gut is the wrong thing to do, and it leads them to their final demise and downfall. In other words, it's completely counterintuitive, but the right choice for for that animal would be to override their emotions and their feelings in that moment and actually run towards the very thing that's frightening them. See, it's shocking how often that is true in our own lives, isn't it? Right? There are a lot of times when our instincts make us want to run away, make us want to run away from our difficulties or things that we're scared of or things that make us uncomfortable. But a lot of times, it's as we run away from those things that, that we're scared of or that make us feel uncomfortable or danger that we actually run towards the real danger, the true danger, not away from it. See, this is what this promise tells us. 
because God is working all things together for our good, we can actually embrace the hard things in our lives. We can actually run towards the roar knowing that God is gonna use them for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. See, because the gospel is true, hardship shapes us, but it doesn't define us. Do you know that? That because the gospel is true, hardship shapes you, but it doesn't define you. See, we, we have the hope of heaven. And because of that, the purpose of hardships in our lives here and now is to shape us, but it doesn't define us. Who you are, what, you, what defines you is who you are in Christ. That's something that can't be taken away from you. Hardships in this life are here to shape you. They're not to define you. That's what we have because of the gospel. And the third act of love is this. He gives us the power to live a new life, verses 10 and 11. In verse 9, we were told that we have been saved from wrath because of the death of Jesus on the cross for us. But verse 10 tells, tells us something very profound. It says that you will be saved. How much more will you be saved by his life? Right? Like you, you're saved by his death from the wrath of God. But how much more will you be saved by his life? And then he says that we have been reconciled to God. And because of, of, of what Jesus did for us, we, are, we have reconciliation. In other words, God makes us his friends. But notice what this is saying. Jesus didn't only die so that one day you can go to heaven. No, Jesus rose again. He also rose again to give you the power to live a new life. That's really good news. See, the early Christians, they seem to have talked a lot more about Jesus' resurrection than they talked about his death. And that's understandable because if you think about it, like imagine yourself in their shoes, right? And you, you tell somebody, well, we followed this guy named Jesus, and well, where's he at now? Well, he died. If you were to stop there, that wouldn't be a very good story, right? Because anybody can die, wait a couple years, and then we're all going to do it. Like, anybody can do that. There's nothing special about just dying. See, nobody would be impressed by that. It's not hard to do. But if you would continue the story and you say, okay, yeah, he died, but three days later, he rose again. He was walking around. He had dinner with us. We had breakfast the next day, right? We put our hands in his wounds and felt them ourselves. Now they're listening. What? That doesn't happen every day right? And what Paul is saying here is Jesus didn't only die so that you could be forgiven of your sins. That's only part of the gospel. No, there's more good news beyond that. He also rose from the grave in order to give you the power to live a whole new life, to be a new person. In verse 9, he said, by Jesus you are justified so you can be saved from the wrath of God. But verse 10, he says, how much more are we saved by Jesus' life? In other words, his resurrection, his new life. See, that's the incredible thing that we're told in Ephesians chapter 1. Check this out. out. Check out what it says. It says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in us who believe. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in us who believe because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Look at what it said in verse 5, that God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit whom he has given us. In other words, God's act of love for you is this, that he gives you his Holy Spirit inside of you to transform you and to empower you to live the life that he's called you to live and the callings that he's called you to fulfill. He doesn't just tell you what to do. He gives you the power to do it. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is at work in you so that you can come from death to life, so that you can walk not in the old dead ways, but so you can walk in newness of life as a transformed person and fulfill the callings that God has put on your life. So the action is that God gives us the power to live a new life. And the implication is don't live a dead person's life. That's my message for you today. Don't live a dead person's life. And that is what we're going to be talking 
talking about for the next several chapters. That's what the next couple chapters are all about. It talks about putting away the old life and living this new life that you've been given in Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So you're not going to miss that. It's going to be exciting over the next couple weeks. Here's what I want to leave you with, this last final thought as we close this morning. Love is an action, and God loves you very much. He's proven that to you time and time again. But I can't help but wonder if there are some of you who have heard that so many times that it's kind of lost its force in your life, where you hear it and you say, yeah, I know, I've heard that a lot. Here's what I want to tell you. Did you know that God doesn't just love you? He actually likes you. And and there's a way in which I think that that can actually be more profound, more impactful. Because there's a sense in which when we talk about love as an action, we can say, well, yeah, love, God is love, and yeah, he has to love me. And of course he died for me, but he also died for a lot of other people. And sure, God loves me, I get it. But here's the thing I want you to know. You in particular, he actually likes you. And I think that's important for us to understand that. He doesn't just love you because he has to. He chooses to. He loves you, and he actually likes you. See, see, we separate actions from feelings. This is the downfall of it, is that, that we wonder, okay, well, maybe he's just doing that because he has to. No, I want to tell you this. He actually likes you. And if you don't believe that, look at his actions. Look at what he has done for you, for you specifically. He gave his life so that you could be his. He wants to be at peace with you. He wants to be reconciled to you. He wants to spend now and into eternity with you, and he wants to redeem your life and empower you to live a new life in him. My question for you as we close today is this. Will you receive that? Will you receive those gifts of his grace? Will you say, yes, Lord. Instead of looking to myself, I will look to you. I will place my hope and my trust and my confidence confidence in you and you alone. If you do that, let me tell you this, he will redeem and transform your life and you will have the confidence for this life and beyond. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this great truth. Lord, thank you for the evidence that we see in this, that you truly do love us. And Lord, this morning, I pray that that love would sink deep down into our hearts, that it wouldn't just be something that we know and something that we've heard many times, but that we would have a deep sense of it, Lord. As we look at your actions towards us, that we would understand that you love us, that you actually like us, that you don't just love us because you have to, but you choose to place your love on us. So Lord, may we know that this morning. May it bring comfort. And may it bring courage and confidence to our hearts as we live this life. Lord, may, may, may we be those who run towards the roar because we have confidence in you. Thank you for these things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.